This is part two of a lengthy interview I did with Matt Colvin. He has been a part of our podcast before. And if you checked out part one, or if you haven't, I encourage you to check that out. Uh, We're talking about divorce and remarriage and the Apostle Paul and how it applies to him and how that changes how we understand some passages of scripture. So if you haven't checked out the first episode, make sure you check that out and then enjoy the second part uh, where Colvin dives deeper into depth on some of the things that he touched on in the first part. So enjoy part two of our interview. Would you hold to like a permanence view for marriage that there is no exception for divorce? Or would you say, I guess Jesus advocating for a permanence view saying this is not, we don't want to do like, or is he saying, yes, you guys are just being too liberal with the way that you're using this exception clause in Moses. Or well, just, I mean, again, uh, the the disciples' response in, in verse 10, um, if that's the way the, the situation of the cause is of a man with his wife, then it's not beneficial to marry. Um, they're so shocked that he would say this. So whatever we think Jesus is teaching, it had better have that kind of power behind it to provoke that shocked and dismayed reaction from Mm. his disciples. And I just don't see that even a fairly difficult or high bar for divorce satisfies that. Oh, well, she cheated on you. You can divorce only if she committed adultery. Okay. Uh, That's a little tough, Jesus, but yeah, I can live with that. Right. Um, Or she tries to kill you. You can divorce her only if she attempts murder. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> but of course, remember that it, the re, it's really more about the remarriage, right? Because mm-hmm. of the nature the nature of, a, of Jewish marriage law, that when you're married, you belong exclusively to someone. And you continue to belong exclusively to that person, um, to a husband. A wife belongs exclusively to her husband. So long as he's alive, as Paul says, right? Yeah. So long as the husband lives, she's under the law of her husband. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's it's not it doesn't dissolve the marriage for her to separate, and go back mm-hmm. to her father's house. Yeah. The problem comes when she marries someone else. That's adultery, Jesus says. Um, you're you're she's really still married to the first husband. Hmm. And just to add another wrinkle, let's remember that for Jesus to run, this this is another reason why this is a trap that the Pharisees are setting him, is that questions about divorce are very freighted with political significance in this day. Much the way questions about sex with interns would have been a powder keg issue during the Clinton administration, because Israel was being ruled over by Herod, and he has his brother Philip's wife, who was a divorcee. And John the Baptist got himself imprisoned and earned himself the undying hatred of Herodias um, because he'd been saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Um, So for the Pharisees to come ask Jesus about this, woo, um, it's a minefield for him to get him in trouble with the authorities. I, I guess I'm just confused though with, with just, and I, I do want to get back to first Corinthians seven because, <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh, the confusing thing is that Jesus does 
seem to say that Moses allowed a concession for divorce. Is that abrogated now? Or because of the hardness of your hearts? Right. It seems like uh, he, if the scripture can't be broken kind of thing, you know, is that something that no longer applies because Jesus brings his higher ethic in the new covenant or something like that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, I'm sorry, the cat is scratching at my door. Um, so in verse 8, he says, I say to them, uh, but uh, he says to them that Moses, with respect to the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, well, we've seen that formula before, haven't we? Mm. Uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you um, that whoever divorces his wife, and then the Matthaean exception clause, clause, not upon cause of porneia, and marries another, commits adultery. Um, so a couple of things to note about that phrasing in verse 9. Um, it doesn't say engages in bigamy or takes a second wife. No, it appears that male faithfulness and monogamy um, is expected too now. So if you marry a second woman, or you are, in fact, even if you divorce the first one, you are actually committing adultery, according to Jesus. Um, but the question that you ask I want to make sure that we're clear that we can ask this in kind of two different ways. Is Jesus saying that it is sin? Yes. Is Jesus saying that divorce is illegal? Well, that's another question, right? Um, hmm. I mean, he certainly is saying, here we are under Moses. I mean, he's talking to people who are under the law of Moses. And he, he on many occasions, reaffirms that, right? The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So do what they tell you. Don't do what they do, but do what they tell you. Um, and, and so nobody hearing him is going to hear, oh, I've abolished the Torah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that God's intent is that marriage is lifelong and monogamous mm -hmm. um, and that divorce is a result of sin every time. Um, someone is sinning if there's a divorce. Um, and to remarry after divorce compounds the problem. Um, it, it is a way of committing adultery. Um, you're really still married to the first spouse, it seems. So that's a pretty radical move on Jesus. It provokes that astonished reaction from his disciples. Is it a ruling halakha? Should a Jewish Christian who hears this, a follower of Jesus, um, who, say, has divorced in the past, and there's no reason to think that this couldn't have happened to some of his earliest sure. Jewish disciples, right? That right. they were divorced in the past and married to someone else. What should they do? You know, repent and sackcloth and ashes and go back to your first spouse? Um, well, there's a you know, kind of a, a law against that right? Uh, in Deuteronomy 24. Um, you know, it, I think in a certain sense, it's such a provocative and severe 
uh, teaching on divorce, that it would have been maybe not quite as problematic as it is for us today in our society full of divorce and full of sexual premarital sex and sexual looseness of all sorts, but it would have been very challenging for, for Jesus' hearers. Um, and therefore, can we say that it is intended to be put into use uh, in courts? Uh, does Jesus envision enforcing this in family courts and marriage law? Uh, I'm not sure that he does. Uh, but um, as far as laying out what is sin and what is not, that, that's what he's speaking to. Um, so um, I think we could say that the church attempted to make Jesus's divorce ruling the basis of Christian marriage law. Shall we go back to First uh, Corinthians 7? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So what are the extra benefits that we get here um, from taking Darba's idea about um, the word sanctified being really married? Um, well, it makes the argument make sense. Um, it, it means that when he says uh, that the, the unbelieving spouse is sanctified in the believer, otherwise your children would be unclean. That means if you if your marriage is not real anymore because of your conversion, then your children would be bastards. They'd be illegitimate children. But they're not. Because your marriage has, in fact, been reconstituted. How? By your continued cohabitation. Um, by sexual intercourse within your marriage that has renewed it's made a new marriage where the old one had been dissolved by the conversion. I see. Um, oh. Now, let's think about this. The question arose, um, and I know, by the way, I know Christians who are in this circumstance, Christians who converted and their spouse wanted nothing to do with Christianity and dumped them, um, or, or even that they weren't really you know, legally married in the eyes of, the, of U.S. law uh, or North American law. Um, but they'd had sex and had a child. And as soon as the, the believer converted to Christianity, the, the unbeliever never slept with them again. Uh, wanted, nothing, wanted out of the relationship now. Um, well, there's usually a nice period of time between the initial stirrings of conversion in the heart of a new Christian and the actual moment of baptism. Um, so there's going to be some time when the the unbeliever can opt out, can decide to leave. Um, and as long as that happens before the moment of baptism, it will make for a fairly, fairly tidy break. Um, and we don't have to resort to this medieval doctrine of the Pauline privilege, privilegium Paulinum, uh, in order to account for what Paul's saying here. He's, he's simply saying, let them go. If they don't want to continue with you because you've become a Christian, you, you're not bound to them. You're not enslaved, in verse 15. You don't have to chase them down the street and say, but we're still married. No, just let them go. Um, and there's no need to divorce them because you don't have a real marriage anymore. Um, you're a new creature. 
they're not your husband or wife anymore, and you haven't reconstituted your marriage after your baptism. And so it tidily solves the issue. But if they are willing to live with you, then you're fine. And mm. your children are legitimate and holy. Um, you have a real marriage. Um, so that's that's kind of the benefit of Dabba's interpretation. It clears up this sanctifying, this holiness and cleanness. Um, it seems to fit better with Jesus's prohibition of divorce um, because it means that Paul isn't actually urging any divorce in this passage or permitting any divorce in this passage. Um, and I think it's actually kind of a, a benefit for us that it has a high view of baptism and conversion, um, that it, it takes those, it takes baptism seriously as affecting a real change in, in human beings, socially and relationally. Um, so so let that's good. Let me just sum to make sure I understand. So basically, Paul's saying, if any brother, if any Christian has an unbelieving wife, so he, so they're married, the the the, the husband converts. Mm -hmm. Now there's a there's a fork in the road. The wife might, who's still an unbeliever, might go, "I'm out of here. I'm leaving." Yeah. Right. Um, or she might say, well, I can handle this. I'm going to stay with you. Mm -hmm. The husband cannot divorce her. He's not going to send her off. He's going to kind of leave it up to her. Right. And then the, or let's say in the case, well, yeah. So the, so the believing husband, if the wife continues with him, their marriage is made holy. It's consecrated through sex. Well, they are consecrated to each other. They're That's consecrated to each other. So Meaning they belong exclusively to each other. You don't sleep right. with other people. We're married now. So that's what happens, yes, to informally do sex. Yeah, okay, gotcha. But if she didn't then and she decided to leave, would that be a legitimate divorce? Or no, it's not it's not a divorce. That's a benefit of Dava's view, is that it's not a divorce. It's um, just she okay. So gotcha. if they if they leave before you get baptized and they never sleep with you again after you're baptized? You're still then, married? No. Well, if, if they leave, then you're not married. You're a new creature upon your baptism. Okay. So that's, okay. So th that's what's interesting. So basically, as soon as when the brother converts, mm -hmm. his marriage to his unbelieving wife, it's no longer a marriage. Correct. Okay. Gotcha. And that then marriage is gone. That marriage is gone, right? And then if she goes, well, I'm gone too, then it's like, well, you didn't divorce. Your marriage has died. Is, is, that, is that kind of yeah, the idea? Or, or perhaps better, you have died. You have died, and okay. You are, you are a new creature. Right, in, right. In your baptism. You okay. nominated that person. Right. That was, an, that was an, literally another life. <laughs> okay, gotcha. And then so now it goes, well, if you're a former wife in a sense, right? If she wants to stay and you have... You continue in your married life, then don't. Now you're married again. You don't have to do a whole new ceremony. It's by the act of sex. You are now. And I guess that would be saying that the believing husband consecrates his unbelieving wife to himself again, even yeah. though she's not a believer. Correct. Yeah. Right. It's it can still be a mixed marriage, right? Yeah. And that way, your kids are still considered part of a legitimate marriage. That's right. The, Otherwise, the, the, they'd be. They'd, Bastards. They'd be bastards, right? Because right. they have two unwed parents. Right. So so really the 
I guess it's taking the the only way that the marriage bond can be broken is via death. And mm-hmm. in conversion, there is a death. Yeah. I mean, a, not, not quotes, but an actual, you know, a death and yep. which, and that's according with Jewish custom, which eliminates the marriage or, or, or dissolve, dissolves it or, or ends it properly, I, I suppose. Yep. By death. Yep. And then the question is, what do you do with this person again? So I, would you be saying that Paul is telling if you're, you're converted and your spouse says, I'm out, you don't have to send them away. You don't have to divorce them. No, you, are, you don't have to. It's in a sense, it's already been done for you by your, by your conversion and death. Yeah. I see. Wow. Okay. Yes. Now, what caught your eye and the reason that you asked me on the show here, I think, was that yeah. you saw my, my Twitter exchange. Yeah. I confess that when I first discovered this, read this from David, David Dauber, which I guess was way back in 2013, 2012, you know, good 10, 11 years, years ago now, maybe even earlier. Um, I did not even think about Paul himself. Hmm. And this this other person tweeting um, said, yeah, this is what happened. Paul abandoned his wife. Um, now, I don't like that phrase, and I don't think that's what we should say. I think what's more likely is Paul converted to Christianity, got himself baptized, and his wife said, I'm out of here. Hmm. I don't want to, I'm not dealing with you anymore. Um, and presumably they're childless. Um, and... We never hear anything about her, but when Paul says, I, I could wish everybody were as I am, um, are you, are you without a wife? Do not seek a wife. Um, that seems to be the situation Paul's in. Of course, as a Pharisee, it would have been normal and expected. Paul would need to marry. Um, there are mitzvot, commandments in the Torah that you need to fulfill by marriage. Um, and so it, it's been a crux. It's been a puzzle for everybody. How could Paul be single? Why don't we hear anything about his wife? Um, presumably, I and mean, he says, I have a right to bring along a, a believing wife, as do Cephas and the other apostles. Uh, so Peter's wife, if he was married before she converted, she's a believer. She accompanies him with his ministry and uh, his ministry. But Paul's wife does not. Um, she's presumably. If, if, if he was married, that means she did not do what Paul has in mind here, being willing to continue to remain with you. Um, his wife was not willing to remain with him. So he doesn't say I had to divorce her because he didn't have to. Um, he's saying he's single. Yeah. Because he's a new, he's a new creature. Interesting. Okay. So th- this is this is fascinating because on the one hand, it holds the shocking nature of Jesus's absolute saying you, sh- you can't divorce okay. while also uh, <laughs> preserving some of the passages that seem like there is a free, like that's the big thing. You're no longer bound, right? With regard to what, but what's, con- so if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be. So you're not enslaved. God has called you to peace because you're no longer married to them. Right. But then why, how does the, how do you know wife, whether you will save your husband? How does that optimistic well, spin fit in? Yeah. I mean, if, if they go on, he doesn't say it's your choice. Oh, I converted in my, this is a great way for me to get rid of my wife. Oh, I see. Right? This is not connected That's, to 15. It's actually carrying on why you shouldn't divorce her. He's saying, yeah. if they leave you, let it be. 
But if they don't, you don't know. I mean, you could your your influence could actually bring them to Christ. Yeah, there's actually another adversative, right? So in 15, let's look at it closely. But if the unbeliever separates, let him separate, or let mm. poor separate. The brother or sister is not bound with such persons once you separate. And then there's another but. But God has called us to peace. Mm. So he wants us to live. He doesn't want us to create family strife. Right. He doesn't want the gospel to be our, a special tool for you know, roving-eyed unbelievers. Hmm, how can I get rid of my wife? I don't have any legitimate right. grounds under Greco-Roman divorce law or under Jewish divorce law. I know. I'll convert to Christianity. That'll fix it. Paul's like, no. It's up to your spouse if they're willing to continue with you. And if they are, you better try. Mm. Because God might want you to be the means by which they're saved. Right, right. Okay. And so Paul... You're, you're the, the hypothesis that he, because he's a Pharisee, would have been married. He doesn't mention mm-hmm. his wife. Uh, he views himself as a single man. And it's likely that, and I know some people say that he was a widower. Uh, yeah, that's the other possibility. Yeah. Um, but, but, it, but if he's, if she's still alive and she, uh, you know, abandoned him, yeah. or rather he, she just refused to continue with him, then, then 1 Corinthians 7 is him actually speaking from his own life experience, perhaps. Possibly, yes. Um, Interesting, and it, and it would fit. It would fit this model of what's going on in First Corinthians seven. Um, Paul would be himself an instance of it. Tentative. I just yeah. want to make clear to your listeners: we're speculating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, yeah, yeah. To, we're trying to solve difficulties in one of the most misunderstood and puzzling texts in the Bible, First Corinthians seven. We're trying to do it in a way that um, sheds light on multiple different passages and. Um, reconcile some of the difficulties in an elegant manner now and i i feel like it does that yeah but there's there's a cost and that is it's really difficult to apply pastorally because i'm thinking too like i mean right on the top of the head what about two christians who divorce or 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 what or one christian or one christian deconverts right do they become the an unbeliever at that point yeah and then does this but then that's kind of a backdoor way of it. But then let's say they, they deconvert and then they decide. I don't, to abandon you. I don't think Paul's even talking about that. Mm. Um, that's not in view. He has in view that step one is two unbelievers are married to each other. Right, step, right. Step two is one of them converts to Christianity. Um, you know, what would he say? And we could we probably have materials that, with which we could construct an answer to that. If somebody apostatizes uh, or apostatizes um, from the faith and becomes an unbeliever at that point, um, are they dead? Right, right. (laughs) Or were they ever a a lot? Yeah, well, I guess though. Yeah, if you they were your one, your once saved, always saved debates, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. That man, that gets tricky. you know, I, I think my I, I'm sympathetic to you know high bar even to you know I I'm sympathetic to some of the permanence kind of perspective. Yeah. The hard thing is just thinking about the person who is the victim insofar as that can really be ascertained. Mm-hmm. The person who the, the faithful Christian who their you know husband leaves them and you know goes off. Um, now I know that. 
you know i'm thinking i'm thinking of some instances right now yeah yeah dear dear friends who are in that circumstance right and uh you know i could see to the hard-hearted obstinate person why it'd be like yeah you need to hear this you can't just willy-nilly you can't do this to the person who gets abandoned and i i find that first corinthians 7 has been the refuge for that to say if you're abandoned Mm -hmm. you're free you can go off and you can um be remarried Uh, You're no longer bound to your marriage. Uh, But even this, I guess, is talking about an unbeliever. I I suppose in my mind, the way I do the math is I think maybe a church, there's church discipline to somebody and they call them an unbeliever. They're called an unbeliever by the church. And so then if that unbelieving partner separates, the partner who's affected by that may no longer be bound to it, perhaps. Um, But that, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, this is very stimulating in my mind. I'm, I'm just thinking through this. Um, sure. but give us the correct answer, Matt. Go ahead. I know you have it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to remember just what a bizarre circumstance we're in. Hmm. Um, and I, I've mentioned this in other contexts uh, as the church is being called upon to speak to an increasingly befuddled and bewildered world that no longer even knows what men and women are. Right. Um, the, the, the church uh, is, not, is itself being swept along in the swirling rapids of liquid modernity. Um, and I've been, I've been reading uh, a book by a, a German sociologist, Hartmut Rosa, um, called Social Acceleration, A New Theory of Modernity. And he's, he's just talking about what technological acceleration, the fact that we, we try to get more and more done in faster and faster time, um, sort of events of email and texting and, and Zoom, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These are all instances of social acceleration. Um, you know, what is, what is happening to individual consciousness as a result of the feeling that everything is so very fast these days? Um, there's this tremendous fear of missing out, that life is going to pass you by, and you try to compress more and more experiences into a shorter and shorter time. And I, I really think this book is helpfully read in tandem with... Um, What's what's the rise and triumph of the modern self by mm. Carl Truman? Yeah, um, which talks about how we're all feeling this tremendous pressure to sort of construct our own identities, our bespoke identity, um, not just in terms of career and style and artistic right. preferences, but but also sexually. Um, and Rosa points out that with the the speed of modernity, um, increasingly people are no longer seeing marriage as a lifelong thing. Um, Mm. They are instead, they're they're marrying for as long as it continues to promote the happiness and bespoke identity of each party. Um, and, And we see this in the kind of really depressing announcements of divorce from celebrities. It was Reese Witherspoon this past month, divorced for the second time. Really? (laughs) You lose count, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
the the uh, the usual celebrity boilerplate about divorce. Right? Oh, we love each other deeply. We're going on a nice co-parenting relationship now. We want what's best for each other. Um, or Tom Brady and Giselle Bunken. Yeah. Um, that that's that's the way it goes. Nobody really. And the marriage is not even really primarily about making a new ontological and social reality. It's about throwing a big party and, and having special photographs taken and um, prancing about on the beach with a pretty dress. Um, so that's, uh, let me read you a little bit of what he says here. Um, <clears throat> the consciousness of contingency in family ties is being heightened even among those who decide to remain together for their entire lives. And he had just earlier said, lifelong monogamy is being replaced ever more frequently by, by a form of serial monogamy or romantic partners for a time. Um, and that's a very typical modern family arrangement. So, but even for those who don't do that, even for those who aren't, you know, Elizabeth Taylor with her six husbands or however many mm -hmm. it was. Um, <clears throat> those of us who do stay faithfully married to the same woman or same husband um, for, for life, there's a consciousness of contingency, the awareness that things could also be otherwise, not only through the choices of another, but also through one's own choices and the resulting uncertainties and compulsions to justify inertia are increase, uh, undeniably increasing. Sigurd Neckel has given this an apt formulation. The simple fact that everyone knows that things are done otherwise by other people places one's own course of life under an obligation to justify itself and gives birth to the necessary action of inventing oneself as a person. This establishes a symbolic reality behind which the individual cannot get. This already alters society independently of whether everything is actually different than in times when it was composed of a few great groups. And we can apply that to marriage. The fact that you and I, and I've been married to the same woman for 23 years now this May, um, the fact that you and I are in monogamous marriages, we're still living in a society in which that's a weird choice, an unusual choice a strange hobbit hole religion choice. Um, and it changes the nature even of your faithful monogamous marriage. Um, your, your marriage is swimming upstream. It is without the historically normal structural supports of society that reinforces loyalty and faithfulness in marriage, stigmatizes divorce. Um, no, divorce doesn't seem to carry a stigma anymore. Nobody is particularly appalled uh, as two people growing tired of each other. Um, No-fault divorce is countenanced by law. Um, so that's the pastoral reality that we're up against, um, not, not just for people who have been divorced, but also in shepherding and caring for those who are still married, um, that they are in, I might call it another instance of the microgravity of modernity, um, what would have held the stones together 
um, and constructing the edifice of a household no longer does. Um, it's harder for everyone to just stay married, um, given the normalcy of divorce in modernity. That's fascinating. I mean, it is, it's like a social thing. I mean, you see spikes of different mental disorders or, or, you know, just by social media, everyone can see other people dealing with like the, the, the plausibility structures of the world where, yeah. where you're right. It's like marriage was never designed in a vacuum. It was designed to be part of a society that also honored it and all the, and, and how we did, how employment worked and how, you know, the, the economy worked and how social structures worked and everything was meant to promote. It's almost like to put pressure to keep this thing together because it's such a difficult thing to keep together and those things erode. And now it's up to these two people, exactly. you know, to try to keep it together. And, wow. and I, yeah, a marriage conference is not enough to, to fix that. And, and it's, you know, that's, I, I'll, I'll send you this article that I wrote as well. And you might want to put it in your program notes for your yeah. listeners. Um, I wrote it for in, in dialogue with Alistair Roberts for the Theopolis Institute. He had a we had a, a discussion with some other participants as well yeah. uh, on sexual identity. Yeah, and Alistair's initial um, article on in that conversation was urging that here's an opportunity for the church. Um, we need to construct sexual identity in a biblical way, um, and I agree with him about that, but. I'm not as optimistic as he is about it. It seems to me that um, it's a disaster that all these external supports and social norms have been eroded and taken away, and it's all up to the individual. I mean, you're going to have to grit your teeth and stay married by force of will. You're going to have to build those virtuous habits. Your marriage isn't just going to coast along on default um, without deliberateness and intentionality on the part of both the husband and the wife, uh, not not in liquid modernity where um, divorce is so normal. Um, and so that raises kind of the question, um, the norms that we've lost now, how did they ever come about? Because we mentioned they weren't in force in the Roman world. Divorce was rampant. Yeah. Um, sexual immorality was normal. Um, and, and the answer is, the church got hard-nosed and enforced Christian sexual morality with church discipline. Mm. That, that's how it happened um, in, in antiquity. And I'm, I'm, I kind of wonder, and this is, this is very difficult for seeker-sensitive churches to even get their mind around. You mean that when you confront people who have been living by the world's sexual morality, and say, what you've been doing is all sin, and you need to be monogamously married and never divorce. Yeah, that's what we need to say. Um, and I think the the plausibility of same-sex marriage has only also arisen because of the erosion of all those norms and the treatment of sex as basically friction for recreation. Um, that doesn't lead to children. Um, mm. one, once you have those norms eroded, then uh, naturally fruitless, sterile, same-sex activities appear to be equivalent and um, compa merely companionate marriage um, 
between people of the same sex begins to look plausible because after all, um, Christian marriages aren't having kids either. Um, hmm. So I wonder, do we have the gumption to do what is necessary to return the church um, to a position of being an alternative to the world's sexual, sexual immorality? Um, will we discipline ourselves? It will be painful. That's a good word. A sobering word, though. I, I, that's powerful, though. I mean, you're right. It, it, it bears reflection. I mean, I, I, you know, I think about this where it's like the sermon that'll get you fired isn't going to be preaching on gay marriage in a church. Most people at your church are going to be like, yeah, we're on board. It's not going to be dunking on the liberals because everyone there is, you know, they get that. It's, it's not even going to be necessarily teaching on money, although that can spur, uh, stir the pot. I think once you start talking about divorce yeah. <laughs> and some, you know, important people in your church, maybe are unbiblically divorced or they shouldn't, or whatever stance you take, you know, and I think that's the thing, no matter what stance you take on it, where you think there's some, you know, acceptable times you can divorce or whatever, it's not covering all the cases. It can't possibly be that everybody there is, you know, and so that is a very difficult subject to broach. That's going to be difficult, but, Man, I, I just think when you said hard nosed, I that what I mean, what more countercultural ethic can you have? Right. Yeah. But um uh we've already gone very I I don't I want to respect your time. I appreciate all all, all this. I maybe I, I would love to hear briefly, you know, just on a personal level, what you, you've been at you know 23 years, that's wonderful being married and and for that long that you, that you've been able to do that and you've raised kids and what has it been for you? What, what, how, what has been the most helpful thing for you in building that virtue and keeping, you know, swimming upstream for 23 years in a world that's gone crazy? Um, well, part of my answer is maybe not going to be helpful to everybody. And that was, I was raised Christian and I came to my marriage as a virgin. Hmm. And divorce, we've had, we've had rough times, and there have been times when we've felt that pull of the world's holding out the option. You don't have to keep going. You don't have to fight for your marriage. You don't need to um, go through the painful processes of repentance, reconciliation, and um, working on your marriage. Um, just cut your losses and you know, start over with someone else. Um, but I think because, and I didn't necessarily know this David Dalbert explanation, I think it helps even more because it, it upholds the strong ontological reality of the one flesh union, um, that you really are one with your wife and that divorce will destroy and put asunder something that God made one. Um, but even before that, even before reading that, I, I def definitely knew um, it was sin. Uh, I would be, my wife would have a legitimate complaint against me. The church should excommunicate me if I took such a step. Um, and uh, I would have lost all respect for myself in my Christian walk. Uh, I would have seen it as... Um, a great treachery to Christ as well as to my wife. Um, 
It was was has never been a live option. Um, so, to the extent that my upbringing told me this is not a live option, you can't do this as a Christian. That may not necessarily be all that applicable or helpful to other people, but I think that's kind of what we need to recover. Um, it needs to be something that is beyond the pale and off the table um, for Christians. How do we make that happen? Um, and, and let me qualify this. I'm not talking about abusive marriages or you know, the need to flee from uh, an abusive husband or wife. Um, I, I'm talking about the normal pressures, stresses, unhappinesses that happen to everybody if they're married long enough. And what are you going to do about them? Um, and the need to constantly crucify your flesh, repent, and walk in faith, um, to heed the scripture's advice, especially Peter's advice about um, treating your wife as the weaker vessel um, and heir together of the grace of life. Um, so I think the church needs to recover uh, the reality of the prominence of marriage. Um, it needs to practice church discipline. It needs to say these hard things sometimes to um, people who are, maybe don't want to hear them. And we need to we really need to underscore the antithesis and difference um, between us as Christians and the way Christians behave in their marriages and the swirling maelstrom of the world's sexual immorality. Um, the, if, if discipleship is costly, if people know they have to give up all that um, unfruitful uh, behavior, things of which we should be ashamed, if they know that they have to make a clean break with that to become Christians, um, then I think that will benefit the church. It will not be Christian identity will no longer be just another piece of you know, bespoke self-construction to be put on and taken off uh, like the latest fashions or music choices. Um, if, if there's a cost to it, um, if it is a weighty ontological reality, um, if baptism really means something, even legally here, um, as Darby suggested it might, uh, then we might be more on our way to um, making that difference between the church and the world visible and making even the church perhaps a beautiful and attractive thing, um, for especially for women who are being ground up in our culture. Um, much the same way that they were in ancient Roman culture, uh, that they would see, oh, Christians, when they get married, husbands don't practice sodomy. Having children is natural. Um, wives can expect to be taken care of and to be um, married for life and expect to be given children and raise them. Um, that there should be a, a domestic peace and sweetness that the world is not offering. Um, that, I think, is ultimately the goal. Dr. Colvin, thank you so much for joining us. These are great words. I'm going to put some of the resources that you mentioned in our show notes. Um, but I yeah, appreciate your work on this. It's 
bears reflecting on and uh, I think it's a good word to the church. So thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian.